like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, Romans 2 and verses 12 through 16 is our focus this morning. Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to begin with verse 12 and read through verse 16. Paul writes in Romans 2:12 saying For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, Thomas Schreiner sums up uh, these words that I have just read to you by this uh, title, Judgment by a Fair Standard. And judgment by a fair standard is the law of God, and everybody has the law of God. Not everybody has received the written revelation of Moses uh, that God gave through Moses. Not everybody like the ancient Jew, had the law of Moses. But uh, Paul goes on to point out that even the Gentiles have the moral law of God stamped upon their nature. It is the rule of our being, verse 14, and our consciences bear witness to that reality. And so no one is without the fair standard of the law. Here's the problem. By that fair standard, we're all condemned. Thank God that God's law is not the final word. Thank God there is a gospel. The law has among its purposes to be a tutor, says Paul in Galatians, to lead us all to Christ. But today our subject is this fair standard of the law. And as we look at this subject of the law of God, I want to look at it with you under two heads. First, the law in life, that's verses 12 through 15, and then the law on the day of judgment, that's verse 16. Let's begin with the law in life, and first Paul talks about the law in life for the Jew. Uh, That's verses 12 and 13. This is what he says. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, Paul begins this new section uh, dealing with judgment by a fair standard with that preposition for, which connects what we're looking at today with what we looked at last time, specifically verse 11. And if you look back to verse 11, you have this connection Judgment by a fair standard will be carried out by a fair judge. That's verse 11. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. 
Uh, last Lord's Day, I was um, with my former boss in Linden, Washington. My wife and I had some time with he and his wife. And um, when I worked for him, he was a breeder of registered Holsteins. That meant that we oftentimes went to the cattle shows. We showed cattle uh, in the fair and other cattle shows. And, you know, being around breeders of cattle, I... I learned that there was a criticism among some of these breeders, among some of the judges at these shows. Some of the judges were known as halter judges. And a halter judge was unduly influenced by the man or the woman at the halter. They tended to to, to judge based not on the heifer or the cow that was being led through the ring, but the man or the woman that was leading the animal through the ring. They were... Uh, unduly influenced by the breeder. Um, That kind of thing is sometimes seen even in the court of law. Not every judge is carrying out their judgment like Lady Justice, that is to say with the blindfolds on. Uh, Sometimes human judges on the bench have shown favoritism to one party. But um, God isn't like that at all when it comes to judging. Abraham was giving us a rhetorical question when he said to God, shall not the judge of heaven and earth do what is right? And of course he will. God does not have a different standard or a different application of the standard among men. It matters not whether one is a Jew or whether one is a Gentile. For verse 11 we read, for God shows no partiality. Uh, This judgment by a fair standard, and that fair standard is the law of God, and everybody has the law of God, whether they have it written or not, they have it stamped on their nature. Judgment by a fair standard will be carried out by a fair judge, and God is that fair judge. Now, Paul is, is taking on a Jewish sacred cow in verses 12 and 13. You know, prejudice can keep a sinner from the kingdom of heaven, and John the Baptist was well aware of a prejudice, a deep-seated prejudice among the Jews that all was well simply because they had Abraham's blood coursing through their veins. But John the Baptist knew that that kind of reliance on a biological connection with Father Abraham was was, um, potentially fatal uh, to to these people. And so he took it on head-on and he pointed out effectively, that uh, it will do you no good at all to have Abraham's blood in your bloodstream if you don't have Abraham's faith. This is what he said to the presumptuous religious leaders in Matthew 3, and 9 and 10. He said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Being physically related to Abraham would not spare them from the wrath to come if they did not have Abraham's faith. And these people that came to John the Baptist did not have, as of yet, Abraham's faith. How do we know that? Well, Abraham saw Christ's day from afar, Jesus tells us in John 8, and he rejoiced, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have an application for us Gentiles in this, and that is to warn uh, even the Gentile against the presumption that sometimes comes into the life of a Gentile that all is well simply because one has been baptized or has a lifelong association with the Christian church. Um, that is all well and good, but the question is, do you, do I have Abraham's faith? Uh, who is Jesus Christ to you? Do you rejoice in him? Do you have any other argument but him? Do you have any other plea but him? Uh, this is revelatory as to whether things are indeed well for our souls. Uh, faith union with Jesus Christ is vital. Sinners are otherwise in Adam and under the covenant of works and will be judged by God's exacting moral law. Now, it was not just a reliance upon Father Abraham that was characteristic among many of the Jewish people. There was also a reliance upon Moses. If the ancient Jew tended to be presumptuous because they had Abraham's blood coursing through their veins, they also presumed upon having Moses for their prophet. Unlike the Gentiles, uh, they were under the law covenant, says Paul in verse 12, where he writes, for all, have, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, referring to the Jews, will be judged by the law. Now notice that the pagan Gentiles are said to sin at the beginning of verse 12, even though they are without the law. They're obviously not without the law in an absolute sense, and Paul is going to explain that even the Gentile has the moral requirements of God stamped upon their nature in verse 14, and our conscience in verse 15 bears witness to that. It turns out that the difference between the Gentile and the Jew when it comes to the law was not as great as many of the Jews thought. But the Jews were correct about one thing, and that is that it was no small privilege to live under the law covenant because under the law covenant you had more than just God's moral requirements fully fleshed out in written revelation. You also had gospel promise under the law covenant. You had uh, that which promised and pointed to Jesus Christ. And therefore, under the law covenant, in every generation in Israel, there was always a remnant that was saved by the grace of God. That wasn't true among the Gentiles who simply had the moral law of God stamped upon their human nature. They didn't have that gospel promise proclaimed to them. And unless they, like Ruth, came, under, uh, came into the old covenant community and under the wings of Yahweh, they were without hope and without God in the world. But to live under the law covenant and miss the point of it all gave the ancient Jew no advantage over the Gentile. Indeed, Paul makes it clear that the judgment will be in accordance with light given in verse 12, and therefore the judgment would be greater for the unconverted Jew. Well, the law in life for the Jew is spelled out in verses 12 and 13. 
the law and the Gentile in life is spelled out in verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, Paul begins verse 14 with that preposition for, which is tying what he says in verses 14 to 15 to what he said at the beginning of verse 13, where he wrote this, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. That was the false confidence of many of the Jews. They possessed the law. But the main point of verses 14 and 15 is that the Gentiles also possess the law. And Paul's purpose here is to undercut the Jewish boast and confidence that possessing the law was somehow salvific, that... um, that if you had the law, that therefore you knew the blessing of salvation. Paul's point is that merely possessing the law cannot guarantee salvation, because even the Gentile possessed something of the law, and yet every Jew would agree that the Gentiles were sinners and strangers to the experience of God's saving grace. The knowledge that the Gentile has of God's moral law is not a saving knowledge. Paul is pointing that out in our verses that we're looking at now, verses 14 and 15, and thus it follows that the greater knowledge that the unconverted Jew has of the law of God cannot be in itself saving. Verse 14, again, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. In verse 14, Paul says two times that they do not have the law of Moses, but this does not mean that they're without the moral law. Paul says in verse 14, by nature they do what the law requires. What he's driving at is that while they are without the Mosaic law, they, in effect, possess the law, meaning the norms of God's moral law. They have that. We all have that. We have it because we're made in the image of God, because it is the law of our being, because God stamped his moral law upon every human nature. You don't need Moses to tell you that it's wrong to steal. People who have never heard Moses know that it's wrong to steal. Men have, ever since the Garden of Eden, known throughout the earth in every generation, in every part of the world, that it's wrong to steal. That's how come the thief ordinarily works under the cover of darkness. And that's how come the thief all over the world is being restrained uh, from his activity when that is possible. Because everyone knows that it's wrong to steal. You don't need Moses to tell you it's wrong to steal. Everyone knows the Eighth Commandment because it's been something that has been impressed upon our very nature. Last March, Jane Fonda was on a television program called The View, and the subject turned to abortion, and the discussion was about the Supreme Court's 
recent decision about abortion, and Jane Fonda made her impassioned speech about uh, women having the right over their own body, and she said that we are never going to go back to the days when abortion was illegal. And then the subject turned to, well, how do we respond to people who are pro-life? Uh, what should be our response to these people? And Jane Fonda had a one-word answer, and her answer was murder. And Joy Behar, the liberal host of The View, immediately interjected, and she said, she's kidding to the studio audience. And the other ladies on The View uh, joined in and, and also affirmed that Jane Fonda was kidding. She wasn't to be taken at face value. She wasn't to be taken seriously. The camera then panned Jane Fonda's face, and her face indicated that she wasn't kidding at all. And she said nothing to indicate that she was kidding, until two days later there was such an avalanche of protest to the vile thing that she had said on The View that two days later, uh, after an avalanche of social protests, she came out with a public statement explaining that she was kidding. I, for one, am dubious about that. Her face suggested that she wasn't. She didn't seek to put the record straight. And um, besides that, it seems terribly consistent with a view of being pro-abortion, pro-murder, to be open to even taking the life of somebody who opposes abortion. But putting all talk about kidding aside for a moment, why did the liberal women of The View, who are supportive of the practice of abortion on demand, why did they immediately insist that the statement of Ms. Fonda was not to be taken at face value? Why did they immediately seek to sanitize what she had said? Well, it's really quite simple. The moral law of God is written upon the, the heart. It is the rule of our nature for every human being, and that includes the abortion-supporting liberal ladies of the view. They know that murder is wrong. They don't need Moses to tell them that. You don't need Moses to tell you that it's wrong to bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't need Moses to tell you that it's wrong to covet uh, what belongs to your neighbor. You don't need Moses to tell you that it's wrong to commit adultery. Men know that. Men have always known that. It is the rule of our nature. God has stamped his moral law on every human being. It distinguishes us from the animal world. We are made in his image, and we cannot escape it. Now, in verse 14... Paul is teaching that the Gentiles possess the law too. Even if they lack the written law, the Gentiles show that they have the law because they occasionally do what the law commands. I mean, after all, even Ms. Fonda does not in practice go to the abortion clinics and look for the pro-lifers standing outside that are there to pray with women in distress that come to that facility. Uh, she doesn't uh, go to those places and take out her gun and, and shoot the pro-lifer. 
Um, she is restrained. Since even the pagan world frequently does the externally right thing, it follows that the law has been written on the heart of the Gentiles. That is verse 15a. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, when Paul talks about the law being written on the hearts, he's talking about the natural man. He's not talking about the spiritual man. He's not talking about those who have been born again. There is language in the Bible that talks about Gentiles who have been born again, and for that matter, Jews who have been born again, and that is that God in the new birth writes his law upon the fleshly tablets of the heart. But when the Bible talks about that, it's talking about that which is unique to the Christian. One of the marks of the Christian is that we can say with the psalmist, I love thy law. God's law has been written now, not on a heart of stone, but the fleshly tablet of the heart, a heart wonderfully changed and transformed by the Spirit of God in the new birth. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about what is true of all men everywhere in Adam, uh, whether they are born again or not. He is talking about not the love of God's law, but he's talking about the requirement of requirements of God's law. It has been written, it has been stamped upon our human nature. After all, we are made in the image of God, and that's one of the things that distinguishes us from the animal world, is that we have God's moral law stamped upon our being. You know, when I lived in, when we lived in Texarkana, there was a cat uh, that lived on the church's property that was a great hunter of squirrels and periodically would leave me a squirrel's head on my doormat uh, as a present. And uh, I never called the police department when that happened and said, you need to come out and investigate here because, you know, squirrels are not made in the image of God. But when a human being is murdered, it's a different story. You can murder a human being. You can't murder an animal. The homicide department secures the crime scene and carries out a sophisticated and costly investigation. Why? Because the person in view was murdered, as can only happen when someone is an image bearer of God, and one of the characteristics of God's image bearers is this moral law of God stamped upon our nature to which the conscience bears witness. And that's Paul's point in verse 15b. The conscience does bear witness to that moral law while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is not saying that we can allow conscience to be our guide. He's not Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket uh, is a lousy theologian. Paul knows that the conscience can be sinned against repeatedly so that it's deadened and dulled and doesn't work as it ought to work. That can happen. Paul is very much aware of that. It can be seared as with a hot iron. All Paul is saying is that the conscience, even of the most hardened sinner, sometimes exonerates and at other times it smites. Now, the conscience is not the same thing as the law of our nature. It bears witness to the law of our nature, but it's not the law of our nature. The law of our nature... 
fits into the category of the law of nature. James Boyce points out that when we talk about the law of nature in our day, we usually have in mind things that regulate the material world, things like the law of gravity or the bonding of elements or combustion or nuclear energy. But, uh, says James Montgomery Boyce, when the ancient theologians used this term, it meant, as it does here, the law of human nature. The law of human nature is like natural physical law in that it comes from without and is meant to govern the way things operate or function. But there is this difference. In the physical realm, an object has no choice as to whether or not it will observe physical law. Those laws always operate. But in the human or moral realm, people do have a choice, and the law is universally violated. And we all know that because we all have consciences. And sometimes our consciences come to our rescue, and sometimes they accuse and they smite us. Well, what are some of the applications of verses 14 and 15? John Stott writes this, The universal knowledge of God's law, which Paul has been demonstrating in verses 12 through 16, is an indispensable basis both of the divine judgment and of the Christian mission. As to the divine judgment concerning the Gentiles, Paul is explaining why even pagans, in verse 12, who never darkened the door of a synagogue, or in our day the door of the church, are still sinners under judgment. They are not without law, and they will be judged by a fair standard, for God has stamped his moral requirements upon their very natures. And therefore, all men everywhere know that they are accountable to God. And that's one of the things that their own consciences tell them. As for the Christian mission, it concerns evangelism. Why can a Christian bear witness to an unbeliever, even if that unbeliever says that he or she doesn't believe in God or doesn't know if there is a God, as is the case with the agnostic? Well, Paul explained to us in Romans 1 that the reason that you can bear witness to an atheist or an agnostic or to any sinner not yet in Christ is because they all know that God exists. Although they knew God, Paul explained to us in Romans 1, uh, they um, turned away from him and they worshipped a lie. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Now Paul is giving us another reason why we can be bold to bear witness to our neighbor, even if our neighbor says that they don't believe in God, because there's also this internal witness that our neighbor has, just as you and I have, and that is of the conscience. Uh, God's moral law is stamped upon their being, and their conscience bears continual testimony to that reality, and they can't escape it. What I'm saying to you is that as we think about the Christian mission, realize that the conscience of your neighbor is your ally as you bear witness. As I preach the gospel, I'm reminded all the time that the conscience of the sinner 
is with me, the preacher, and not with the sinner to whom I'm preaching. The conscience is the ally of the preacher. It gives me a a kind of boldness in the pulpit. It is also meant to give boldness to the Christian who bears personal witness to his neighbor. The conscience of your neighbor is your ally. Never forget that your neighbor has a conscience. Never forget that your neighbor really does know he or she is accountable to God. Do not be shy about being faithful to bear witness. Your, your neighbor not only has a conscience, but that conscience can never be obliterated. It may not work as well as we would wish, but nor is it obliterated. William Plumer writes this, Conscience bears witness in a way that none but scoffers will deny. Men cannot rid themselves of its power by adopting abominable principles. Atheists have confessed its power. Felons feel its frightful sting. If men have consciences, it must be because God has given them a moral nature and placed them under moral law. So the law in life, everyone knows Everyone knows that man in Adam is under law, whether they've heard Moses or not. Everyone knows that. Secondly, the law on the day of judgment, that's verse 16. Let me back up and read verse 15 so you can see the flow. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul is making three links uh, to the day of judgment in verse 16 to other verses in our passage. Two are obvious. The first link to verse 16 is verse 15, and the law of our nature and our consciences. The moral law of our nature stamped upon our humanity and the conscience defending at one moment and prosecuting at another moment tells us that what may be secret today will be brought out into the open on the day of judgment. The conscience tells every human being there is a great moral lawgiver who knows all, who sees all, before whom we must all someday stand before and render an account. The conscience tells all men everywhere there's a day of judgment coming. Men may seek to suppress it in unrighteousness, but they can't escape that reality. Now, in light of what I have just said, how do you spell relief? All of us will someday stand before God and render an account for our lives. So how, in light of that reality, of this coming day of judgment, how do you spell relief? I'll tell you how I spell relief and how every true Christian spells relief. I spell it J-E-S-U-S. Jesus means Savior. And the law has among its purposes to be a tutor to lead us to Christ who can save us from the condemnation of the law. 
And here's the good news for the Christian. If you have Jesus as your Savior, it is no small consolation to know that he is going to be the judge on that final day. He's the one that's going to be seated on that white throne judgment before whom all men will someday stand and render an account. The very one who bore your sins in his own body. That doesn't mean there won't be an assessment of your life, but it does mean that it's not a day of condemnation. My wife has told me that she wants as her funeral text, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful verse? In light of this coming day of judgment, The second link to verse 16 is what Paul wrote in verse 12. Now, I've not adopted the parenthesis theory of the King James or the New King James. If you've got that today, you probably notice that verses 13 through 15 are put in a parenthesis by these translations. I'm not uh, fully accepting of their theory that that's a parenthesis, but... I do appreciate that they help us to see the connection between verse 12 and 16. So let me read verses 12 and 16 together so that you can see the connection that the King James and New King James help us to make. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law on that day... When, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All who have sinned will be judged on the final day of judgment, Jews and Gentiles, all our sinners. Paul goes on in verses 14 and 15 to show that Gentiles have also sinned against law. The evidence against sinners is astronomical, after all, Sin is more than outward deeds. Um, The law judges the thoughts and the attitudes and the motivation of our heart. And everything will be brought out into the light on that coming day. And I can't think of anything that argues more eloquently that all of us born and conceived in sin in Adam and who have proven ourselves to be actual sinners in thought, word, and deed, that we all need Jesus, the Savior, to save us before this day arrives. Only he can save us from the wrath to come. So you have these links. I've shown you the link between verse 16 and 15, between verse 16 and verse 12. But there's a third and less obvious link, and that's between verse 13 and 16. Verse 16 is the only verse in our passage that mentions uh, Christ Jesus and highlights his deity. Look at verse 16 again. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The final judgment is a divine work, and therefore... The one who sits on that throne is clearly divine, and the one who will be seated on that throne is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He makes that clear in a number of other places in the New Testament, or he and others make that clear. And one of those places is John 5, where he told us that the Father gave him 
this role for a very specific reason. John 5, 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. William Plumer writes, the last day will settle one controversy that has long been conducted with heat and violence on one side and with unflinching fidelity on the other, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ. There's going to be no debating the deity of Christ when all men will stand before the judge, the divine judge, the God-man, in the final judgment on that coming day. Now, he is going to sit on a white throne, according to the book of Revelation, because his judgment will be pure. There's going to be no miscarriage of justice on that day. He was described earlier in Revelation as one who has eyes of fire, penetrating knowledge of all things. He will judge the secrets of men because he is the omniscient Lord. The connection I make now is between judge Jesus in verse 16 with the word justify in verse 13, where Paul wrote this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If on the final day of judgment in verse 16, the sinner is under law, he or she is condemned, they're doomed. But is there no gospel? Is there no good news? Did not Paul just use that word gospel in verse 16? Isn't that word gospel a precious word to you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as you think about that final day of judgment? Uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, Paul has talked about that already in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He's going to come back to it at the end of Romans 3. Is Jesus not more than the final judge? Is he not also the Savior of sinners in this, the day of grace in which you and I are living, are all to be condemned? Well, certainly not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul will go on to explain in Romans 8.1. Paul's point in verse 13 is that the Jew cannot be justified by the law, and his point in verses 14 and 15 is neither can the Gentile. His big point in this radical depravity section in which we are presently located is to shut us all up to Jesus and to show us all our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how he's going to end this total depravity section. In Romans 3, 19 and 20, he writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But then he goes on to talk about the gospel in the next section, he begins it with these words, Romans three twenty one and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to close by applying the condemnation of sinners and the justification of believers to the judgment day of verse 16, first applying these connections to the child of God. I'm not suggesting to you that the blessing that you have right now, firmly in hand, of justification through faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation is by grace alone. I'm not suggesting for a moment that therefore that gives you a license to live carelessly right now. Paul, when he talks about every believer standing before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8 through 10, calls upon us to live our lives at present in light of that day, Since a believer's life will be assessed on the day of Christ, we should, like Paul, make it our goal to please the Lord who saved us for himself and saved us to make us not only a forgiven people, but a holy people. And one of the ways that we are to live in light of that coming day is to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord But we do so with the blessing of justification firmly in hand and remembering that when we come to that day, it's not a day of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the day when the believer will be saved to the uttermost. As for the secret things coming to light... William Plumer offers this insight. Shall the sins of God's people be exposed on that day? If they shall be, it shall not be to their confusion or condemnation, but only to the magnifying of the riches of the grace which washed and saved them from their sins. And there the believer may let the matter rest, For he is willing that Christ Jesus should have all the glory of his or her salvation. The the, the second application is for those in our world that are not under the gospel yet, but are still under the law. And we would say, does your conscience testify that the secrets of your heart Your thoughts, the motivations of your heart shall be brought out into the open on the coming day of judgment. Does your own conscience tell you that there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed? Then we would appeal to you in this day of grace, because that's what today is. It's not the day of judgment. It's a day of grace in which God is extending his grace to unworthy sinners. We would make our appeal to you that on this day of grace, this day that the Bible calls the day of salvation, that today Christ stands ready 
to pardon you, to cleanse you of your many sins, to wash them away so that you are as white as snow in the presence of God. This is a day that the law of God can be as a tutor to you, to lead you to Christ, because that is one of its primary functions, according to Paul's writing in the book of Galatians. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ, to lead us to the Savior. Uh, the law of God is, is something that is meant to show us our sin and our need and to lead us to Christ. And so we would say, let the law of God be a tutor to lead you to Christ. Call upon his name, because the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Bible says that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that the law is not your final word. We thank you that there is a gospel, that there is the gospel of God, the gospel of your Son, and that by your grace, your people can say with Paul, it is my gospel, it is my hope. We thank you that you have given us such solid hope in Jesus Christ as we think about the law, as we think about the day of judgment. We would pray today that your people would be given new grace to live carefully and mindful that even the lives of Christian people will go under an assessment on that day. And that while the issue is not condemnation, the issue does concern reward. And so we pray that we would not be uh, loose in our living, but that you would help us even this coming week to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. We pray, Father, also for those who are still under law and not under grace. We pray that the law would be as a tutor to lead them to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.